Well, good morning, and I invite you to find a seat, and we're going to get started this morning. All right, here's the question to get us going. How many people this spring planted something? Raise your hand if you planted something. All right, what, what did we plant? Shrubs. Tomatoes. That's a good choice. What else did we plant? Anyone plant anything different? Potatoes. Very good. All right, well, you guys are really going to get this first one if, if you're into planting. When Jesus first told this story, it was to an agrarian society, so they all understood planting, but I don't know we know that much about planting. I mean, I've got one of those green seed spreaders in my shed, and occasionally I reseed the lawn. But uh, we have some planters. Now, let me ask for our tomato guy. Did you do anything with the soil before you put your seed in there? Kind of broke it up. All right. Make sure it's good and deep and rich. Okay. Smart man. Smart man. Jesus uh, was teaching one day, and he told this story that kind of goes along that line. He said this. Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. And others fell on rocky places where it didn't have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen... They were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out, and others fell in the good soil. And it yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty, and they had many BLTs. Well, that's not quite in there, but I think in the living translation that might be in there. Now, the, the disciples apparently were having a little trouble figuring out exactly what Jesus meant by that, so they asked for an explanation of this teaching. And Jesus said this, Well, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away that which has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road. And the one on whom the seed was sown in the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. So in this parable, the seed represents the truth of God's word. So in a way, I'm up here this morning, and I've got my little green reseeder, and I've loaded it up with the truth of God's word, and I'm just kind of spinning the dial. And we're throwing seed out. That's kind of what he was saying. So the seed represents the truth of God's word, and the, the point of the parable was that good seed planted in good soil yields a fruitful and productive life, a life that glorifies God. But this passage also teaches about the danger of living in such a way that God's word never has its intended consequences in your life. Think of those other three categories. There was the soil beside the road. This represents a life that has been hardened, been compacted by habitual repetition of sin so that the seed can't penetrate the crusty, hard exterior. He talked about the rocky soil. This represents the life that is shallow. It has no depth, is one of the ways he described it. No depth. So the rocky soil illustrates the dangers of shallow thinking which lead to shallow values and priorities, which leads to shallow living. 
I mean, there's good intentions, but it always ends with those intentions withering away and dying. And the danger that Jesus was teaching about on that day when he talked about rocky soil is exactly the same danger that Paul turns his attention to this morning in the passage we are looking at in Romans chapter 7. He's going to be talking about the danger of shallowness, the danger of missing the entire point of the book of Romans, the danger of missing the entire point of life because of shallow thinking. Let's take a look at the text. It's Romans 7, verses 7 through 13. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Well, may it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would have not known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I, once, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandments came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking the opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then... The law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? Well, may it never be. Rather, it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin, by affecting my death through that which is good. So that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. Now, we landed in chapter 7, so let's just do a quick review. Reminder, chapters 1 through 3 presented a case that we have a problem. It's summed up in 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Chapters 1 through 3 explained we have this problem. We have missed the holiness of God. And chapters 4 through 6 explained God's solution to our problem. That there is salvation available by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And in chapter 7... Verses 7 through 13, we look at the danger of missing the whole point here because we went shallow when we should have gone deep. Paul is concerned here that some would misunderstand due to shallow thinking and conclude that since the problem was discovered after the law was introduced, that the problem here then really is the law. Hence the question, is the law sin? And the answer, may it never be. If you need an interpretation of that, it means no. It means emphatically no. It means I can't believe you even asked that question. No. God's law is not the problem here. Our sin is the problem. God's law did not create the problem. It exposed it. It revealed it. And it did that so that we might find God's solution to our problem. This is one of those situations of don't kill the messenger. You see, calling the law the problem would be like a patient calling the MRI the problem because it detected a cancerous tumor in their body. The problem isn't the MRI. The problem is the tumor. The MRI just exposed the problem and made the person aware of it. Now, why would anyone even think this? Why did Paul even have to write these verses? I think if we were editing the Bible, we might edit this section out. But Paul said, no, this is important. We need to get this. There's something very critical going on here. 
Why would anyone come to this conclusion that the problem might be God's law? Well, because if the problem is God's law, then the problem is God's problem, not mine. And that is where shallow thinking will kill you. You see, if we conclude the problem is God's problem, then I don't need to change anything. I mean, he needs to fix his mess. I'm doing just fine. This is the danger of shallow thinking. Shallow thinking disfigures and distorts God's truth, and it creates a wrong perspective in us with wrong attitudes, and it results in wrong actions. If the problem is my sin, then I am thankful for a Savior, and I put my faith in Him, and I live my life to honor Him. If the problem is God's law, well, then I'm mildly irritated God created such a problem for me. I wish He had done a better job. Wish He'd try harder next time. Amen? I don't need a Savior. I'm doing just fine. I mean, after all, it's not my problem to fix, right? It's God's problem. This is a veiled attempt, a subtle attempt, to blame God for our problems. When confronted with our sin, it's very common to respond by blaming God and blaming others, isn't it? And you know what? There's nothing new about that. That started day one of the fall. Let's take a look at day one of the fall, see how that day ended. Genesis 3.8, Adam and Eve are in the garden. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord called to the man and said, where are you? And by the way, that is not an informational question for God. That is a diagnostic question for Adam. Okay, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? That is not an informational question for God. That is a diagnostic question for Adam. Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, well, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? That is not an informational question for God. That is a diagnostic question for Eve. And the woman said, well, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. One of the themes you've heard recently, if you've been around here a little while, is that only God can provide that which sin deceitfully promises. You remember what the promise was here? The serpent promised, boy, you do this, you eat this fruit, you're going to be just like God. It's going to be great. But take a look at what sin delivered there in that passage. It didn't deliver greatness. It delivered fear. It delivered shame. It delivered hiding. And that's always what sin delivers. It delivers fear and shame and hiding. You see, because of sin in our lives, we now get to experience three obstacles we have to overcome to get to intimacy with God. The first one is fear rooted in shame. The passage said that Adam realized he was naked, he's exposed, he's self-conscious. And this is referring to far more than just his physical appearance. He realizes he is known and he doesn't measure up to a holy God anymore. The primary means of relating both to God and to Eve before this day was intimacy. The primary means of relating to God and to Eve now have been changed to fear. 
That's a big change. The fear that if someone knew all of you, if you were exposed to the core of your being, your thoughts, your motives, your intentions, your actions, that others would reject you and not love you. So how do we compensate for this change that sin has produced in us? How do we cope with this fear that sin has now brought into our world? Well, sometimes like Adam and Eve, we hide. We hide. We pose. We posture. We image manage. We create personality holograms of who we would like to be. And in my opinion, 90% of what you see on social media fits into this category. Okay? I'll give you a double amen on that one. And the problem with this is you know that's not the real you. So even when other people affirm or love your personality hologram, you do not feel loved or affirmed. You're actually more fearful that your image management system might somehow fail and they might discover who you really are. Fear rooted in shame was the first obstacle sin brought into our path. The second one was hiding rooted in insecurity. Hiding rooted in insecurity. Why is Adam trying to hide from God? Have you ever done that? You know things maybe aren't right between you and God. And so you think, well, I think I'll skip small group this week. You know, I think maybe I'll just find something else to do Sunday morning or sleep in a little late. Or uh, I think maybe instead of spending time with God in the morning, I'll just uh, be a little busy right now. And we're doing exactly what Adam's doing. We're thinking somehow if I don't meet with God, he won't know things aren't right. <clears throat> what a crazy thought that we could hide from God. There was a book written by a Christian psychologist, Paul Turnier, entitled The Strong and the Weak. It's an old book, but the thesis of the book is fascinating. The thesis is that everyone on this earth is desperately insecure. Everyone. <laughs> That's the thesis. That's what he says. He says some people cover that with strong reactions, others with weak reactions, but it's really the same thing. Did you ever meet someone and they immediately tried to impress you with their credentials, their knowledge, their possessions, where they take their vacations, their importance, how many people they manage? They're powering up. That's a strong reaction. And why are they powering up? So that you will back off and create some distance. Because if they can create distance, they think then you won't see their insecurity. That's their fig leaf. That's how they're covering their insecurity. But he said other people express it with weak reactions. You know, there are people that just stare at their feet a lot and they say, I can't do anything. I've had a terrible life. I'm a victim. Life's terrible. I'm unworthy. And you feel sorry for them, so you try to help them. But after a couple interactions, you realize your best efforts at helping are not being helpful. And you begin to think that they don't really want your help. Maybe they just want your sympathy and attention. And so what do you do? You back off, don't you? And that's exactly what they were going for. Distance, hiding, keeping others out. His point is no matter whether you have a strong reaction or a weak reaction, it's the same thing. It's people using their fig leaves to create distance to hide. We often hide because we're insecure. That's a part of the fall. A third part of the fall we see there was blaming rooted in denial. And this fits in with our Romans passage. So God confronts Adam. What have you done? Look at Adam's response. Well, the woman you gave me. The woman you gave me. 
So what is he saying here? What he's saying is, it's not my fault. If anything, it's her fault. She, she did it first. And if it's not her fault, well, God, it's the woman that you gave me. Okay? So it, obviously, it's either her fault or it's your fault for giving her to me. But it's not my fault. Blaming rooted in denial. Well, is Eve going to do any better? God turns his attention to Eve. What have you done? Well, the serpent deceived me. It's not my fault. It's the serpent's fault. And who put the serpent in the garden? I think you put the serpent in the garden. So really, at the end of the day, God, let's realize that it's either the serpent's fault or it's your fault. But it's surely not my fault. Blaming rooted in denial. It's as old as day one of the fall, and that's exactly what Paul was speaking to in this verse. Paul points out that the law reveals our sin problem. And when it is revealed, instead of trying to blame others or blame God, he says, why not be honest and just own it? Why not confess it? Why not agree with God about it? And if the first six chapters of Romans have left you still thinking that maybe there's not a sin problem we need to deal with, Let me pull back this morning the curtain and show you a little of what goes on behind the scenes here. I'm going to take you on a backstage tour this morning of what sin deceitfully promises but can never deliver for you. We find this little tour in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, we pick it up where it says this. And do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, this is about as straightforward as you can put it. Don't love the world system because you cannot claim to love God while loving what God hates. Can't do that. That would be like a parent saying of their child, I love my daughter and I love the multiple cirrhosis that is crippling her body. Now, that's not true in our family, but I know families where that is true. And you couldn't conceive of a parent saying that, could you? That... A parent saying, I love my daughter and I love the multiple process. He said, no, I love my daughter and and I hate that which hurts her. I hate that which cripples her. And God says, that's exactly the way I feel as a spiritual parent. I love you and I hate that which cripples you. And that's the world system. Now, when it says don't love the world, does that mean we're not supposed to love the people that are in the world? No. It means we're not supposed to love the world's system. We're not supposed to love its morals, its system, its lies, its deception, its values, its godless philosophies, its injustices, its rebellion towards God. So we should hate the world first because God hates it. James 4.4 4 says friendship with this world is hostility towards God. But the second reason we're to hate the world is because of what the world tries to do to us as Christians. 1 John 2.16 picks it up. It says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from God, but is from the world. Now, what does the world try to do to the Christian? Well, the world tries to incite sin and rebellion in the life of the believer. All throughout Scripture, we learn that God wants to forgive us of our sins, to deliver us, to purify us, to set us apart for righteousness. 1 John 2, 1. He says, stop sinning and be pure. Matthew 5. Blessed are the pure in heart. Ephesians 2, 10. You were saved in order to perform good works. 1 Peter 1, 16. Be holy as I am holy. Titus 2, 14. I have called you to be pure for my glory. James 2, 17. I want you to be unblemished by the 
world. God wants there to be some people on this planet who are pure and unstained. And God breaks the power of sin through his forgiveness and the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit in order that we would live righteously in purity. But what does the world say? It screams, fall. Come on, sin. Give in. Everybody's doing it. You only go around once. Why don't you have a little fun? Don't be old-fashioned. The music says do it. The TV says buy it. The movies say try it. And the internet delivers it to your door faster than Amazon Prime. The world system is being used as a tool by Satan. I am not saying that Amazon Prime is a tool of Satan. I like Amazon Prime. But we need to understand there's a world system And it wants to take us downstream when the Holy Spirit wants us to go upstream. There's three different scams that the enemy likes to run on believers. And you should expect these. You should be ready for these. What are they? Well, the verse pointed them out. They're the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And he'll try to get you to fall for one of these scams. In fact, I can guarantee you that this week... The enemy will try to deceive you with one of these three scams this week. I can guarantee it because he is that persistent and he is that predictable. I guess he'll stop using them when they stop working. He'll try to slip one of these lies into your values, into your habits, into your desires with one singular goal in mind, your destruction. Let's take a look at them. The first one's called the lust of the flesh. That even sounds X-rated, doesn't it? It's the desire to live for pleasure, to attempt to find meaning in life through the endless pursuit of fun, thrills, highs, new conquests, new experiences. Galatians 5.19 kind of describes what this often looks like. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident. They are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, and carousing. So this list includes a variety of sexual sins, of religious problems, of relational problems, of self-destructive behaviors. We like to call them addictions now. But all of these as human beings, all of us as human beings, we have natural physical appetites. And when we want those physical appetites to be filled beyond the boundaries laid out by our loving Heavenly Father, when we seek to fulfill all of our fantasies, whether they are sexual, recreational, vocational, or whatever, there is a sense in which we lose our balance and become singly focused on the fulfillment of our own runaway desires. And it takes our mind off the kingdom of God and off other people and off the word of God and we become singly focused people, but we're focused in the wrong direction. And any area where the normal physiological desires are pushed beyond the boundaries established by our loving Heavenly Father, where our minds become singly focused on that which is only of passing pleasure, not eternal, that's an area where we have fallen for the scam known as the lust of the flesh. And contrary to the advertising, that trip will not end in fulfillment. That trip will end in destruction. There's another scam he tries to use on believers. It's called the lust of the eyes. Did you know that your eyes have an appetite? They do. 
Our eyes have an appetite. This is covetousness. This is the desire to live for possessions, to find meaning in life through the accumulation of things, the stockpiling of treasures and toys. Researchers tell us that we've gone from being exposed to about 500 ads a day back in the 1970s to as many as 5,000 a day today. So 5,000 times a day, a suggestion is put in your head that your life will never be complete, fulfilled, meaningful, unless you get this thing that you don't have. That's a lot of no's to be saying every day. I mean, most of us have cars that get us where we want to go, don't we? I mean, very few people actually wear out their cars these days, but we fall victim to beautiful women sitting on the hoods of beautiful new cars with wonderful new options, and everyone's saying, boy, you would sure be someone important if you owned a car like that. And after looking long enough, a little voice in our head just starts screaming, I have got to have that. I have to have that. That's covetousness. King David fell because of the lust of the eyes. He looked at another man's wife, and he kept looking until he had a problem. Achan in the Old Testament fell, and it says he looked upon another man's treasure. And he looked so long that he convinced himself he just had to have that. And so he compromised his faith, and it cost him his life. What you constantly feast your eyes on is what you'll fall to. So be careful what you desire with your eyes, what you covet. In Matthew 5, 29, Jesus said, If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out. For better that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now that's tough stuff, and there's some hyperbole in that verse. But the point is pretty clear. Jesus is saying, don't let your eyes cost you your soul. Be intentional with your line of sight. Remember that your eyes have an appetite. A third scam that the world runs, tries to run on believers is called the boastful pride of life. This is the desire to live for power, prestige, and position, to find meaning in life through the accomplishment of status, through the admiration and the envy of others. This is putting on the big show for other people. And most people seem to like to live a little beyond their means to create the impression that they really have more than they actually do. And people vie for positions and certificates and titles and accomplishments to hang on the wall because they feel that if they, can, they can be a somebody if they can just get those credentials, those titles. If they could be called this or that or get this position, well, then I'd be a big shot. And this desire, this to present ourselves to be more than we actually are, I think we all know that temptation. And I hope this morning as we look at this, we are just reminded and we realize just how shallow and godless that really is. I mean, in today's society, there's no doubt we are bombarded with be successful, look successful, act successful. And in most cases, that's just feeding this thing called the ungodly pride of life. Scripture paints a different picture of who we are. Scripture says, be meek. Don't put on a show. Be humble. The Bible says, don't think highly of yourself, but think highly of others. Don't get an inflated view of who you are. Be a servant. How about be authentic? How about instead of posing and image projecting, Why not just be a real person with some real insecurities and some real strengths and some real weaknesses and surround yourself with some other imperfect people who love God and who know you and love you as you really are? Could we give that a try for a while? Would that be okay? 
Why do we hate this world? Because God hates it, because in the sight sin in the life of the believer, and because the world and its system is passing away. Verse 17, the world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Jim Elliott would write, he is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Jesus would say, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? In another place, he'd say, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on this earth. Why? Because they just rust and rot and depreciate and come to no avail. But on the other hand, every hour of service, every ounce of energy invested in building the kingdom of God, every dollar given, every prayer raised to heaven, these are things that last forever. So for wise, we'll build the kingdom of God right here, right now. Colossians 3, 1 says, seek first that which is above Seek the true treasure. You know, it's okay for a boat to be in the water, but it's bad news when water gets in the boat. I've experienced this personally within the last month. It's okay for a Christian to be in the world, but it's bad news when the world gets in the Christian. So God's word is pure and it is true and it has the power to transform when it's placed in deep soil. So how deep is the soil of your life this morning? Are you going deep with God's word or are you staying shallow? You know, a little later in this book, Paul's going to explain to us there's a fork in the road coming here. And you're going to have to pick a side. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, it says this, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and and perfect. Have you gotten to that fork in the road yet? It says there's a fork in the road and there's only two paths and you got to pick a side. There's one path that's the shallow life, the meaningless life, the unproductive life. This passage calls it the conformed to the world life. This is the life that's really more shaped by the world's rat race of endlessly pursuing more pleasure, more possessions, more prestige. The other path is the life of depth and significance. It's called here the transformed life. This is the meaningful life, the productive life, the life conformed to the image of Christ, the life that seeks first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and lets our loving Heavenly Father pretty much put all the rest of the pieces in place. This path is fueled, according to Romans 12:2, by something called the renewing of your mind. That's God's truth falling on the good soil. Of your life, the surrendered soil, the obedient soil, the grace filled soil, the loving, dedicated soil. God's word, the seed, is always good. You see, the only variable in this equation is the condition of the soil on which the seed falls. Are we hardened? Are we shallow? Are we thorny? Or are we good soil? How would you answer that question? Stephen Covey wrote a best-selling book called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and in it he shared an experience he had. He was on the subway, and he he got on, sat down, was uh, hoping for just a little quiet time to do a little reading. And as he sat down and tried to get into that, right before the doors shut, a couple of kind of of out-of-control kids ran on, and they were kind of running up and down the car. They were being loud. They were bumping into people, kind of being very rude and obnoxious. 
a guy stumbles in kind of after the kids, and Stephen kind of assumed it was the dad, and, and he came over and sat down uh, next to him. And the kids just kind of kept running around, just being way out of control, and everyone on the car recognized it, but seemingly the father didn't. Stephen thought, well, I'll just ignore this. I can just kind of, you know, get to my next stop and call it good. But uh, eventually it just, he began to, to think, why is this irresponsible parent not stepping up and taking care of his family? I mean, is that so hard? Everyone else sees what needs to be done. Why doesn't this dad see it? And he tried to be quiet, but he said after a while, I just couldn't, you know, keep quiet anymore. He says, my attitude affected my behavior. So people were almost looking at me. You're sitting next to the guy. You talk to him. So finally I gave in and I turned to him and just said, Sir, do you think you could control your children a little? I mean, look around. They're upsetting everybody in the car. And he said the guy kind of lifted his head almost as if kind of coming up out of a fog and, and, and looked around and began to realize what was going on and said, Yeah, um, you know, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I guess I should. He said, We just left the hospital and their mother died about an hour ago. I just don't think they know how to take it, and I don't think I do either. And Stephen said that, you know, in that moment, with that new information, he said something changed within him. You see, Stephen could have stayed quiet. He could have stayed shallow. He could have walked off that subway thinking, well, here's just another example of a lazy, irresponsible, out-of-touch parent. But he went a little deeper. He found out the truth of the situation. And with this new information, it caused him to see the whole situation differently and to feel differently about it and to respond differently to it. So now instead of being irritated at the guy, now he wanted to try to help the guy, to understand him, maybe to find some way to serve him a little. When he went deeper, it changed everything. And when we go deeper, it changes everything. So where do you need to go deep today? Maybe for some of you, going deep means you need to just begin a relationship with God this morning. You need to start at the gospel. You've been coming to church. The Word's been around you, but it's been deflecting off the hard soil of your life. And maybe this morning, you realize your brokenness and sinfulness, and you just realize you need to come to the cross, because that's where eternal life starts. Maybe going deep for you this morning means renewing your mind. Maybe you've been a little spiritually anemic lately, and and as you think about it, your mental diet has been mainly junk food. And you need to kind of go deep in getting in the Word and getting the Word in you. You need to renew your mind. Or maybe for some this morning, going deep might mean having the courage to move into spiritual community. Truth be known, you've been living kind of like an only child, not a child of God. You've been managing your image and having some relationships, but keeping people sufficiently distant that they never see your weakness or your brokenness. So maybe going deep for you might be courageously joining a small group or getting in a small Bible study, a discipleship group, somewhere where you could let people really know who you are and they could pray for you. And you could find that they're just like you, no different. Maybe going deep for you this morning might be speaking to something that's going on in your family. If you've got a family, if, if you've got a, a spouse, or if you've got children, maybe you've been a little shallow. And this morning the Holy Spirit's saying, let's, let's give up the shallowness. Let's go deep. Let's do this right. Or maybe it's just something in your personal life. There's some behavior and you're thinking, boy, I wish I could act better in that area. 
But this morning you realize that's kind of shallow. You need to probably go deeper. You see, our actions are nothing more than that which flows out of what we believe. So there's probably some idolatry down there in the heart, and the actions are flowing out of that. So maybe rather than just thinking about behavior, it's time to, to root out an idol or two that's been in your life, to repent of it and renounce it. And the worship team is going to guide us now in a time of worship. And what this is for is this is for us to worship God. It's also for you to respond to whatever God has been saying to you through his word this morning. And you have a a personal spiritual trainer you can call upon 24-7. It's called the Holy Spirit. One of his names is the Counselor. And he'll counsel you in what God's truth means for you today. After a a time of worship, I'll come back up and we'll pray. But I want to just invite you to, to really go meet with God now in this time.